There are some themes that I have struggled with off and on through the years. For example, one of them is forgiveness. I always thought that, you know, somebody had to meet you halfway in order to be forgiven. And now I know with this, all the time that's gone by, that sometimes you don't get that and you have to forgive anyway. And so that it's not like I sat down and said, well, I want to say this in a story. But then in writing it and looking at it, I realized, hey, yeah, that's what I've been struggling with. That's one of my, my things. And I don't know how you can keep that out of your writing. Hi, this is Stephanie Fallon. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have award-winning author Barbara Lockhart. As a fiction writer, she has penned and published more than half a dozen books for readers of all ages. Her work has received acclaim from the Maryland State's Arts Council and a silver medal from the Independent Book Publishers Association. Barbara earned her Master's of Fine Arts at Vermont College, but she made her home on the eastern shore of Maryland, a location that has routinely provided her with inspiration. Barbara joins us today to discuss her new collection of short stories called The Night is Young, released by Seacomb Publishing in November 2016. So welcome to the podcast, Barbara. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. I am super pleased to be here because I will tell you, I have read The Night is Young. I devoured it almost in one entire sitting, and it's just one of the best books I've read in ages. And I don't, and I don't say that... To all the girls. I don't fangirl <laughs> on all the girls, but this is a really oh, incredible collection. Thank you, Stephanie. I really appreciate you saying that. You start this collection with a really beautiful prose piece, beginning with Puckham is the name of the piece. And then that kind of leads into these short stories that are very sort of rooted in the here and now. Well, this book was a little bit like putting together a quilt because between the longer works that I've done and both novels that I wrote took nine years each. And so sometimes I would just relax and go to something shorter. So I had these short stories in my desk drawer, and um, my daughter Lynn came up with this painting that I fell in love with, which is on the cover of the book, of this little girl who's dressed for Halloween, and she's carrying her little pumpkin. And Lynn called that painting, The Night is Young. And as I put together the stories that took place over a period of time, it just seemed like that painting was sort of what I really wanted to say about how we're all tied to our reality as she is tied to that little pumpkin on Halloween night. But her imagination and her inner life is much grander. And there she is in a little black skirt. Well, it's not little. It's wider than she is tall. Mm. She has on a fur shawl, sunglasses, her hair in a bun, and her nose in the air. And that's kind of like the inner self that we all have, (laughs) the picture we might carry about ourselves or that we might hope to be at one point. Maybe it's sort of because the Women's March just being on my mind, but women as central characters in these short stories, I mean, you really dive into the way that these women move through their lives and their experiences and the way that you tell that. I mean, it's almost like you have this little girl on the front, the night is young, and then the characters that are in these stories, some of them are women dealing with aging, but Mm -hmm. there's still this thread between youth 
and what's passing and what's coming? Well, I was very fortunate as a kid. I had five amps and um, they were the models for my being, I must say. And I have to say, too, that when I would go to these short stories for relief of, from the longer work, you see where I am now. I wrote some poetry pieces that are called <laughs> Long Story Short. <laughs> so that's where I am now. But those pieces were directly from my aunts that I wanted to honor in some way. How did you decide that you wanted to put a collection together? Because the idea is that these are these have been lying around. Was was there one finally recent that you like finally get to twelve stories and you're like, okay, twelve stories, now I put it out. No, my concentration was on the novels right, no. for such a long time. And these were tucked in the desk drawer. And I'm kind of at the age, like, if I don't get it out now, may as well forget it. So right. I thought, well, I will try. And Ron Sauda took the collection. I was very happy. But these are probably written over a 20-year period at different stages in my life and my writing life. And now, what was the selection process like as far as what would come first? Because that's, that's a big deal, what order to put the stories in, because they're not chronological, I assume. I can't answer you because it's like a crazy quilt. You pick up one and you sew it to the next one somehow. But I did want it to end optimistically mm -hmm. so that I had to choose that story. And the first one is about a woman who returns to her creativity. And I think that's a message that I return to myself time and time again. And I think if, if you've got that inner something that says you've got to create, then even when you're away from it for a while, you do come back eventually. You have to satisfy that inner life. Neil Gaiman came out not too long ago, maybe two years ago, with a collection of short stories. It was called Trigger Warning. And in the foreword, one of the things he talked about is like getting a collection of short stories published is one of the hardest things to do because publishers tend to not like mm -hmm. even from famous-ish authors. Mm -hmm. And so what was it like working with Ron? He, he seems like he was right on board. I mean, this time last year, you were wondering where you could get something published. Mm -hmm. And six months later, eight months later, he has that book out. Well, I have to thank Ron, um, Bill Peake for that because I went to him and said, I'm looking for a publisher. And so he recommended Ron Souter and Seacant Publishing. If it had not been for him, I don't think I would have realized it. And publishing is so different now. With the first novel, the first person that looked at it took it. That's the worst, right? <laughs> and I didn't know how lucky I was. <laughs> <laughs> and then with the second novel, I finally had to self-publish because I just couldn't get it out there. It was too regional. So I was very grateful uh, to Ron Souter for accepting this this body of work. So the novel yeah. you're talking about, Elizabeth's Field, was too regional to be picked up. Mm -hmm. So she used, she self-publishes this book and then <laughs> turns around and she wins the Independent Book Publishers Association Silver Medal Award for regional fiction. Yeah. And yeah, so it's funny. It's like, Go yeah. figure. Yeah, go figure. Exactly. <laughs> but that's one of the other things that I saw as a thread through your work is this notion of landscape and the Eastern Shore. Mm -hmm being as a, a backdrop as almost like as a another set of eyeballs even that the mm -hmm. landscape features so heavily even with the Puckham restaurant story and crab feast you know very traditional eastern shore there's this mm -hmm. moment on the water and the crab feast and the kids and the families and uh, strawberry field even desk work has in there so could you tell me a little bit about using the land for your inspiration 
Well, the, the window by my study looks out over two fields, and on the other side there's wood. So I, that's what I look at. Right. But the thing is, you know, I'm from the city, and coming here um, was a culture shock at first. But I just realized somewhere along the line all this wonderful space around and gives you time to ponder and really examine things. And I've, I've come to love the small towns um, even though economically they might be in the past, there's something there that is so community-oriented and people attending their churches and uh, going on about their business. You see, you actually see kids out playing and people walking. And, and there's something about that that is so plain and simple and community-minded that I'm drawn to it. And I have time to really look at people and observe and something about it I want to preserve. So. Yeah. But there's also something about this is what it felt like to be in this place. This is what it smelled like. like a lot of times I'll start with a smell or with a temperature. Just to kind of recall the place I'm writing about, I'm always fighting against not saying, this is what happened, have a nice day, right? Because that's fighting the newspaper guy in me, right? And so one of the things that I like to incorporate is this sense of space, as we were just talking about. And is that something that you resort to? Absolutely. I have to have a setting, and I've found the setting here very comfortable. But I do want to say that with my first novel, Requiem for a Summer Cottage, that too began as a collection of short stories that started to link, I could link them together, and that's how the novel came about. But there too, the setting um, of the country just lent itself to the moods in the book so well that it was easy to incorporate it. I had a lot more technical things in that book, and this wonderful editor I had at the time, she said, "I don't want to hear any. I don't want to hear any of that. I want to know how it felt." Mm. And that was the best advice I ever got. You know, you start with the setting, you start with the person, and then you go on to what's going on inside. It's sort of Shakespearean in a way. You know, that grand inner life. I just recently saw August Wilson's um, play that's been in the movie Fences, and it's the same thing. It's so Shakespearean because it's this grand inner life that comes out. And that's where we understand each other. That's where we come together. When you were talking about your first novel, it brought to mind The Dubliners. And in The Dubliners, all of the short, they're all short stories mm-hmm. that kind of touch upon one another. The only referential one is, of course, the chapter that came out of Requiem, which is called The Crab Feast. Uh But I'm able to take sections of that book and present them as short stories because that's how they started out. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, like, as I was going through, one of the things that struck me is I was kind of going into these women and they were talking about marriage and divorce and getting older. Of course, having known you, I was like, I wonder how much of Barbara... Her, as the writer is filtering into some of these women, is there a lot of you in these? Or You can't help it. Well, I guess that's right. Yeah. You know, when you read into what a character might be thinking, there is part of yourself in it. But, you know, you really try hard to think about what that other person is thinking and feeling and doing. But there are some themes that I have struggled with off and on through the years For example, one of them is forgiveness. I always thought that, you know, somebody had to meet you halfway. 
in order to be forgiven. And now I know with this, all the time that's gone by, that sometimes you don't get that and you have to forgive anyway. And so that it's not like I sat down and said, well, I want to say this in a story. But then in writing it and looking at it, I realized, hey, yeah, that's what I've been struggling with. That's one of my my things, and well, that, I don't know how you can keep that out of yeah. your writing. No, I mean honest. writing is catharsis, you know, and yeah. you find yourself coming forward. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're honest, that's the way it goes. It was, it was interesting that you that you said forgiveness because in the end, that's always going to have to be on you. It's it's a challenge to yourself mm-hmm. to just live with the fact that this has occurred. To make a peace with something is the first step to forgiving it and to making a peace has nothing to do with the other person at all. Mm -hmm. To making a peace has to do with, okay, how long am I going to let this grate on me? Mm -hmm. I've been reading a little bit of Reinhold Niebuhr lately. And one of the things he said was that forgiveness is the final act of love. And when I look at these stories, every one of them is about love in some form or another. And sometimes the love is uh, toward yourself, like the man in the strawberry field. He comes to a place where he knows he has to do the right thing. And that is not only love for his wife, but also for himself, his self-respect. So it takes many, many different forms. The story that you read before we started, and for anyone listening, if you have the opportunity, you should go to the so what's your story com, where you can find the reading before. It was called The Waltz. That's all in our life. That's someone having a debate with themselves about like the meaning of beauty and the meaning of dance, mm-hmm. and that was really, really captivating. That's just an observer. That's somebody who's not especially attached to what's happening. So you can't really honestly call it a short story. It's an observation, a sketch. It's an interesting way to engage. It's That's an interesting, if nothing else, exercise about this is what this person sees. Mm-hmm. And this is how he's thinking about what he's seeing. And in that... You get a picture of what's going on. I mean, you, there's Hopefully. not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, well, and that's that's what's so special about it. I think you know, it's not a story about a dance. Mm-hmm. It's an observation, I guess, if you will, of someone who's thinking about dance, but yeah. in the presence of dancing that's going on, and that's what really kind of again it draws you in, and you're like, wow, yeah. this is something that I'm going to carry with me. This is something that I'm going to kind of meditate on. Well, going I'm so forward. glad that you've said that. That makes me feel good. <laughs> As a writer, we are always in this situation, but we're always at the same time, always on the outside. And so for me as a writer, I always feel like I'm sort of like one foot in and one foot out. And it's the one foot in that lets us observe the the smells, the feel, Mm -hmm. the details of where we are. And it's that one foot out that is the observer and lets us really tell a story in a way that we kind of have to detach a little bit. But I noticed some of that going on with some of, not only the way that you write, but also with some of the characters, that they were doing a little bit of that one foot in, one foot Mm -hmm. out. Well, you know, a very good example of that is the one piece that is a memoir, and that's called The Bird's Heart, where I was with my family. 
and there was a lot going on with an uncle who had Alzheimer's. But again, just as you said, the writer is always writing. You're part of the group, but you're observing, and then there's metaphorically stuff that happens. And, you know, your mind is going in a million different directions. Other people might be drinking and laughing and telling jokes, but I'm not. I'm sitting there writing in my head, you know, the meaning of what is going on. And then coming home and having to write it down immediately because it's just so fresh. I think that's one of the things that you told me that made me feel so much better about myself is that even if you're not fingers on the keys writing or pen to the paper writing, the writing isn't just that part of the process. Writing is thinking about Mm -hmm. the words, thinking about the situation, research. And I was like, you know what? I feel so much better. It's strange, but I think all of us have a very rich inner life because of that, that something will trigger just looking at a person, just looking at the white enameled pot in the strawberry field triggered something where I I went on from there. But there's always this constant observation of people. And I consider it a loving act because I want to know about that person. I want to know what happens to them. And so that's all happens in my mind, in my imagination, but that's where the story is, guessing what it, what it would be like for them. And then that's where myself comes in because I'm imagining how I would handle that. There's a whole lot that enters, but mainly it's the observation, constant observation of people. My family thinks I listen to their conversations, and I'm really <laughs> sitting there blank, and I'm somewhere else with, you know, my right. thoughts. Well, just as you made Stephanie feel better, I guess you made me feel a little worse, because I do the exact same thing, but for the opposite reason. For me, it's always about how do I fit into this story? Like, how am oh. I going to retell this as I go on? So for yeah. you, it's, it's an act of giving, and for me, it's an act of taking. It's the same process though where i rarely will leave a place and not say okay how do i tell the story of what just happened yeah i I tell one tenth of them yeah but it's i was having this discussion with my wife and she said she doesn't do this so i don't know if it's natural or if it's something that's acquired but framing situations is has just become a, a habit that i'm in that's more for me like if i need to know how to describe this later on this is a way to do it. That's not why I'm doing it, but that's the result of it. When I mm-hmm. when I leave a place, it's like, okay, well, this happened, and this was the color, and this was the sense, and this was the smell, and this was the taste, and these were the people, and this is why I didn't like them. You know, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that is the opposite of what I do, because... I try to keep myself out of what I write, and I can't do it. I don't do a very good job of that, but I do try to keep it away, a little bit of a distance there. Is that for a reason, or is it is it because you're shy? Or? It's because I'm trying to listen to the characters, and one of the best advice I got was from Richard Elman, who I met at Bennington, and um, I've shared that a little bit with you, Stephanie. Yes. Uh, I gave him a short story to look over, and he said, "You're in it too much. It's you know you have to let go." And it happened to be a story about my son. He said, "You have to get, let go of this kid." You know, you have to listen to your character and see where he's going to go. It was very good advice because after that, I really got into fiction instead of memoir. Mm. And uh, that really helped. We've been talking with fiction writers a lot lately. And there has been this kind of recurring theme of once you've got a sense of a character and after a while, 
just to be consistent, the character is making as much of the decision. I don't, I don't prefer to put it this way, but the mm-hmm. sense is that the character is making these decisions based on what they've already, like you decide step number one and two, mm-hmm. but then step number three can only be left or right. And, and if they go left, then in order to be consistent mm-hmm. with themselves, they have to continue along that path. Well, some people, when they write, they know what the plot is. They know where it's going. I don't. I kind mm-hmm. of feel my way through. And that's why I revise 10 million times because I don't <laughs> get it the first time. <laughs> so some, a lot of these stories, when I took them out of the desk drawer, it's either going to go in the round file or I'm going to do something with it. I revised every one of them a little bit on um, the Fox Fling, for example. I could not get the ending to that story for years. And it was there finally. If I leave something sit for six months, I can tell if it's garbage or not. Mm-hmm. which I can't tell, like, right when I'm done, I'm like, I'm either like, this is garbage or this is not garbage. Yeah. And I'm always wrong. One more <laughs> but if you let it sit for long enough, because it's almost like you're reading someone else's work and then you're like, oh, I would have done that. And then you're like, oh, what? I can do that. This is my story. I can fix this. Yeah. That was the wonderful thing about going, and this shows my age, going from a typewriter to a computer <laughs> because it has a little delete button. <laughs> I came across a Kirkus review of The Night is Young. The author imbues her character's studies with impressive depth and insight. She has a knack for delivering a lot of detail in a sentence or two. One spot where that was exceptionally true with your work was the story, The Second Death. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to give it away. Okay, but thank you. You go through this whole story with this character, and you're like, what is his deal? S- something is askew. There's this moment that's just a few words, maybe two or three sentences, and within this very brief detail, I learned more in those two sentences about this character. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is an author who knows the craft. Oh, well, and that can only come from, from doing the hard work. Well, it's, it's just like when you meet somebody and there are all the details that you notice about them. You know, they're very careful about their appearance. The hair is perfectly. And then the more you get to know that person, there's a clue here and a clue there. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's like a revelation of some kind. Um, it's a wonderful thing that happens when yeah. you get to know people. And I love that. <laughs> yeah, it was just this beautiful moment. And I remember I got to that point in the story and I stopped and I was like, what, what did I just read? And I went back mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden it was like, you just kind of just like, it was like origami. You just kind of like unfolded this thing right in front of me. And it was just expertly done. And the only way I can describe that is, I mean, that is something that takes years of honing and working on the craft of writing. When you're a reader, you want to be able to trust the writer, that it's not going to all fall down. And there is kind of like a violation of trust if you take the easy way out, especially as as you're going along. You're like, I don't know. Uh, My wife, I wish I could tell you the book that she's reading, but she's reading a book. And for the first five chapters, she's like, I don't think so. And then after she's like, "Okay, okay, I'm on board. I'm on board. For me, Catch-22 was like that. The first six chapters, you're like... I'm not even sure this is in order on purpose, but then afterwards you catch up. But earning the reader's trust is important if you're going to take those kind of chances. From the very, very first sentence, you're asking um, the reader to take a trip with you, a journey, and, you know, they trust you to make it good. I think deep down, we're storytellers. And I mean, you know, that's what we're... And also on the surface. Sure, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Bach said moving toward something that we're creating is an act of the inborn desire to be perfect, to make something perfect. We never quite get there, but it's that striving. And it's also the punching through. I mean, striving is one way of putting it, but there's also when it's not going well, but you know you can't quit because mm-hmm. quitting is oftentimes worse when it's not going mm-hmm. well and you're like oh, i'm taking the day off well then that's never going to happen mm-hmm. you know at least do a bad job first as you mm-hmm. were saying you know get a bad draft out so the a you have something to show for your time and effort yeah. and b you got all the bad part of it out so if mm-hmm. if you get the bad stuff out then there, there'll be good stuff left or yeah. you can make it into something good still. Well, it's like I was telling Stephanie one day, you have to write the 27 miserable pages to get to that golden 28, page 28. That's got it, finally. I'm sure this has happened to you both, but sometimes I look at that page, at what I've written, and I go, where the heck did that come from? I didn't know I had that in there. And it just appeared on the page. I mean, it's like, whoa, what fun. (laughs) (laughs) When you get that right last paragraph, and you're like, Oh, wow, there's a theme in everything. Yeah. This wasn't just made up out of my head. Look, yeah. I got a theme. I tie it together with nice, with nice clever, clever words that aren't too trite. Yeah. Well done, me. Yeah. yeah, but the surprise of it is nice. Sometimes you know that you're going to land well. Like every now and again, I'll be writing like, this is going to be pretty good. But sometimes I'm just knocking along. And at the end, I'm like, oh, that was not bad, you know? One of the final tests for me is I really enjoy poetic prose. And so if I read a piece aloud and it has some rhythm to it and some poetry, I am satisfied with that. It's not always the plot and what happens. In fact, for me, it never is. It's that magic that happens when you come to an understanding and when the language is lyrical. And I think that comes from taking poetry classes, I have to say, at Salisbury University for a number of years, and it affected uh, my prose. We had a guest on, Karen Carides, the other day, uh, and she was talking about Raymond Chandler. It was all about the music. It was all about the music. Uh, For me, it's always been Kurt Vonnegut. Kurt Vonnegut may as well write what he does on staff because it just has a rhythm to it that you fall into and you don't know you're, it's like being rocked. rocked. Yeah. 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 Simple is the best way to put it. Very often I read a book twice. The first time there is this urge to find out what happens. Uh huh. But then there's so much more when you go back the second time and then you can really appreciate the language if it's good and uh, get a lot more out of it. Well, I think what you're saying as far as valuing the the lyrical quality of a work and then feeling satisfied with that, I think one of the things that um, sort of hits the reader right off is when they start with um, beginning with Puckham, and that uh, piece is has that lyrical quality. It has mm-hmm. this poetic kind of you almost just you feel like you're on the breeze. It's just kind of blowing, and that's actually what the story's about. These angels kind of moving through, but um, you set the reader up with that sort of language. Mm-hmm. And then, and it's sort of a very, you know, it's about angels kind of moving, which is not like, you know, nonfiction exactly. I mean, it's not grounded in real, real life. But then we move into these other stories that are, you know, a crab feast. But you don't lose that lyrical quality that you set us up with. It's not like you, you like, you started on a high note and we slid downhill. Mm-hmm. It's almost like we start on a high note and we keep, Moving up, I mean, you were able to maintain that. I mean, was that a was that a feat? Because it felt like um, it to read it. I don't know, um, but very often what I write starts out 
being a poem first okay. to capture the essence of what I need to say. And then I fill it out. And a lot of the stories in Requiem for Summer Cottage started out that way. For years, I was kind of like a closet poetry writer. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't show anybody anything because when I was 19, and I may have mentioned this to you, I sent a whole bunch of poems off to the New Yorker magazine and they all came back. They were all rejected and I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that they would reject my poetry. But you know, I had a lot to learn and I did not know how much I had to learn. But I, that's so that the, the roots are in poetry, I think, for me. So. It kind of reminds me a little bit how Maya Angelou, incredible poet, and then she moves into the novels that she writes, yeah. and she carries that same lyrical quality, that same beautiful mm-hmm. use of language from one thing to the other, and it's incredible. It's almost like I don't even care what happens in a book plot-wise. If the language is good, I'm there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with it. <laughs> Do you know my favorite kind of poetry? I bet you're going to say your limericks. My limericks. If you go to the So What's Your Story podcast.com and you click on that contact button, there'll be a spot there. And if you pick a word and you give us your address, Tony will take that word and make it into a limerick. I'll make it into a haiku. And then we're going to send it to you in the mail, just like it's 1850. Might, might come by pony. You never know. Um, and so now, Stephanie, this is a part of the show where you thank the guest. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for being here. I was so psyched about this. I thank you. This has been a real treat and a pleasure. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Visit us at www.sowhatsyourstorypodcast.com where you can find past episodes, guest bios, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. And then, if you'd like to, feel free to leave us a great review. Tell your story.